Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Haematology Podcast. Today's episode is about lymphoma and joining us is Dr. William Townsend, who's a consultant haematologist at UCLH. He's going to explain the differences between a high-grade and a low-grade lymphoma, symptoms and diagnosis and treatment options. Okay. If I go rambling off, not really answering your question, but say something that's vaguely useful, can you like cut and edit it? Absolutely, and this later? is what we're doing. Okay. We're, gonna, we're just getting we're whatever we can right from the start, and then Gavin goes away and sorts it all out for yeah. us, which is great. Yeah. So, hi, Will. Thank you for coming today to talk to us. So, today is going to be about lymphoma. There are many, many different types of lymphoma. Um, we won't ask you to go into every detail, but generally speaking, could you tell us the main differences between? say, a high-grade and low-grade lymphoma? Absolutely. There are a huge number of different lymphomas. I don't actually know how many there are. They keep, they keep revising the classification and it gets re, reconfigured every few years um, and the number keep changing as we understand more about the genetics of these diseases and things like that. But when I'm teaching people about lymphoma, I think the first thing that people need to sort of try and understand in their head is the, the broad classification of these diseases. So they're all cancers of the immune system, clearly, cancers of the lymphocytes, some of the cells of our immune system. The best way to break up the classification sort of in a, in a tree diagram is to think that we've got Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Hodgkin lymphoma in terms of classification is quite straightforward. There are some subdivisions of Hodgkin lymphoma, but essentially Hodgkin lymphoma is one disease entity. The complexity is in the non-Hodgkin lymphoma arm. And there's different ways of dividing the non-Hodgkin lymphomas up. The first thing to think about is are these diseases of B cells or T cells, so B NHL or T NHL. The vast majority of non-Hodgkin lymphoma in this country is B NHL, about 80%, 20% T cell. Let's focus on the B cell lymphomas. <laughs> Amongst the B cell lymphomas, as you, you said, we can divide these up, not really sort of scientifically, but a very useful clinical distinction is between the high-grade and low-grade non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So by high-grade, we mean aggressive. We also mean when, if you look at it under the microscope, you'd see that a lot of these cells are dividing at any point in time. These are tumours that grow quickly, often with patients that get sick quite quickly. The thing about the high-grade lymphomas, although they make patients quite unwell when they first come to us, if we can get them into remission, we've got a pretty good chance that we can get their disease to stay away forever and cure their disease. The low-grade lymphomas, otherwise known as indolent or slow-growing lymphomas, are quite different. These are diseases that often patients will be really well with. They may have noticed a lump somewhere, gone to be checked up, had a biopsy, and it's shown the, shown the, the diagnosis. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the first thing we say in clinic when we see them is, does it need treating? Because if it's not causing problems, we don't treat it now. You treat it when it starts to cause problems. But the flip side of the low-grade or indolent, slow-growing non-Hodgkin lymphomas is, although we have lots of treatments for them, it is destined to always relapse. It's always going to come back at some point. So you've kind of got two edges to both of these groups of diseases, the high-grade aggressive diseases that make people quite sick. But on the plus side, if we can get it properly into remission, a high chance it will be cured. Whereas the low-grade ones, often not quite so unwell when you present, but usually treatable, but always going to relapse. So what are the factors that make us a low-grade lymphoma, whether you watch it and wait or whether you decide to treat? So that's based really on symptoms. So if you've got a patient with low-grade lymphoma, so the commonest low-grade lymphoma is follicular lymphoma. If you've got a patient with follicular lymphoma who may have lymph nodes, may have quite a lot of lymph nodes, but if 
if it's not causing symptoms, so if it's asymptomatic, and if those lymph nodes are not in a critical part of the body where they may be about to cause another organ to be compromised, then watch and wait or active surveillance is a perfectly good approach. should point out that some patients find that psychologically very hard to accept. Yeah. So they've come to see the doctor, they've been told, got you've got cancer, yeah. and now, hang on a minute, doctor, you're telling us you're not going to treat me. Yeah. For some patients, that is an, a really hard psychological adjustment. And for that group of patients, we now have approval to use the monoclonal antibody rituximab on its own, just for four doses, to, to treat sort of low-volume asymptomatic advanced-stage follicular lymphoma just to reiterate it will make it go away for a while in most patients again it's destined to relapse at some point so in say follicular lymphoma are the is it difficult to treat because the the cells are hiding somewhere or they're not in the growth factor yeah that's a really yeah. nice way of thinking of it the, the, probably the reason it's destined to always come back is that at any point in time some of those cells are not in in cell cycle so chemotherapy, a fairly blunt tool that kills cells that are trying to grow or divide, if some of those cells are not trying to grow or divide whilst you're exposed to it, they're likely to remain viable in the future to come back. That's certainly one way of thinking about why indolent lymphomas come back. Of the high-grade lymphomas, um, what types of high-grade lymphoma that respond better to treatment and have better outcomes? High-grade lymphoma, there are... A few of these. So the commonest non-Hodgkin lymphoma is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, so also the commonest of the high-grade lymphomas. So we abbreviate diffuse large B-cell lymphoma to DLBCL. And then the other common high-grade non-Hodgkin lymphoma is Burkitt lymphoma. Now something I want to get across in this talk as a whole is, I think for our fantastic ward nurses and also ward junior doctors, you really see a very, very skewed population of our lymphoma patients. And I think it's, it's quite sad that you don't get a chance to come to clinic come to our MDT because the vast majority of lymphoma patients that we treat here never set foot in the hospital. So if you come with Hodgkin lymphoma, you will be treated, say, with two to four months of chemotherapy as an outpatient, hopefully never set foot in the hospital, and many, many of those patients cured um, with no relapses. Something that I think is challenging for you guys on the wards is that you see the real tail end, the real difficult cases, either patients whose lymphoma is making them very ill at the time that they present, or people whose disease sadly is relapsed and they're needing more and more intensive therapies, often culminating in a transplant if we get them to remission. And I think I think that's quite difficult for for some of you, some of the ward team who, who have never seen the, the sort of success side of the story of, of our patients who are often young, often got families and jobs and they go through their treatment and get back to their normal lives quite quickly in many of our patients. So that didn't answer your question, which was, which My type of high-grade lymphoma is harder to treat? Uh, no, but that's really important because we always try and tell the, especially the most junior nurses, that you see the worst of the worst and because of the centre that we are, mm. um, you don't get to see people well and in clinic, so it's really important to reinforce that from mm. everyone we speak to. But what I did ask was, is there, from the high-grade lymphomas... Mm. And you mentioned Burkitt. So I've always known from experience that Burkitt's lymphoma responds to treatment really well. Is that the case? Is there different types of high brain lymphoma that do better? Yeah. I'm not sure there's one that does sort of better as such, but if we think about the common types, Burkitt and diffuse large B, the, one, the patients that we see on the ward here, our Burkitt patients are often extremely sick when they present. Burkitt's the fastest growing cancer we know of, pretty much, and causes patients to become very ill when they're first diagnosed. 
The other challenge with Burkitt lymphoma is that we usually treat it with four cycles of very intensive inpatient chemotherapy, each taking about a month, so four months of inpatient treatment, usually with a regimen called Arcodox, followed by IVAC. So very intensive treatment in patients who are quite sick at the start. Now, most patients will survive that induction and most will get into remission and destined never to relapse. So it's quite gratifying to treat when you see someone from the beginning very ill and getting through that. But sadly, sometimes they're so ill from the lymphoma or the complications of that induction treatment are, can be quite tough and uh, can occasionally be fatal. Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as I was saying, the vast majority will be treated as outpatients. Standard treatment is RCHOP chemotherapy, usually given every three weeks, usually for six cycles. RCHOP is CHOP chemotherapy, so a combination of three chemotherapy drugs plus prednisolone, steroid, in combination with an antibody called rituximab, which you'll see loads of, first came into practice about 20 years ago and really changed the way these lymphomas are treated and, and the outcomes for patients. So we typically treat diffuse large B-cell lymphoma the first time it presents with six cycles of RCHOP. You'll rarely see that up here on the wards, um, just occasionally. Most of that's done as an outpatient, and about two-thirds, almost pushing towards three-quarters of patients, will be cured with that. Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma gets very tricky when it relapses, however. So we treat relapsed diffuse large B, so in that roughly a third of patients that relapse. We typically treat that with Salvage chemotherapy. Now, there's lots of different types of salvage chemotherapy. There's no real evidence that any one type is better than another. Mm. Usually give two cycles of that salvage chemotherapy, and then if they've got a negative PET scan at that point, bring them in for a consolidation auto-transplant. Sadly, that approach only works in about half of patients. So of those relapsed patients, this is when you start to see these patients on the wards. If they haven't responded to that first-line salvage, we're looking at more intensive therapies, or they're becoming more unwell from the lymphoma, um, and that's when these patients spend longer up on the ward. So diffuse large B is really a, a, a tale of two diseases, really. We've got the very easy-to-treat patients who sail through our chop and never come up to the ward, and then the real heart sink patients when they've relapsed and become refractory to treatment. And that's where our area of biggest need in diffuse large B cell lymphoma is, is those patients who relapse, who don't have very good outcomes with standard therapies. Some lymphomas seem to have like a specific site of of where the disease is pro- prominently. So like, you know, gut, brain, is there a reason for that? I mean, obviously the, the disease is kind of diffuse anyway, but why would someone particularly get it in the gut, for example? Uh, really good question. There's often no clear reason why. So Hodgkin lymphoma classically, most commonly has a big mediastinal mass. So our, our typical patient with Hodgkin lymphoma usually a young person, peak age is about 30, often with maybe chest pain or cough or breathlessness, and you do a chest x-ray and you find a mass in the mediastinum. We've got no idea why that's the commonest site for Hodgkin lymphoma. Some of the non-Hodgkin lymphomas do have predilection for a particular site, so mantle cell lymphoma quite commonly has gut involvement. Marginal zone lymphomas can crop up in funny places like around the eye or in the stomach or in the lung. We don't know why that is, but probably driven by exposure to infection at those sites. So possibly, possibly, and we don't know this for sure, some sort of abnormal or aberrant immune response to infection. And kind of tantalizingly, some of those lymphomas respond quite well to specific treatment directed at that infection. It just gives you an, in- it's not really a recommended treatment for lymphoma to treat the infection, mm-hmm. but it kind of gives us an insight into what might be driving what causes, because we don't know what causes lymphoma by and large. 
most of these are not genetically predisposed diseases. There's not normally an industrial or occupational exposure that, that may have caused it. Like most of the blood cancers, they typically occur somewhat out of the blue. But on the note, on the point of particular sites of disease, no conversation about lymphoma at UCLH talking about inpatients would be complete without discussion of CNS lymphoma. So we've seen a, probably a big rise in the number of patients we treat with CNS lymphoma here, mainly because one of our colleagues is, is really a national expert in that disease and so receives referrals directly in. CNS lymphoma is usually, but not always, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the brain or spinal cord and historically has been extremely hard to treat because it's quite hard to get chemotherapy drugs into the brain. There's a anatomical and physiological concept of something called the, the blood-brain barrier, which is there designed to stop getting toxins into your brain in the normal state. But clearly, when someone's got cancer in their brain, we want to get the drugs into their brain. So you have to pick your chemotherapy drugs quite carefully because not all of them get into the brain. And there's been a massive change in primary CNS lymphoma in recent years, gone from being a really miserable disease to now one that in a proportion of patients with quite tough treatment and often quite long inpatient stays, both because of the treatment but also because if they've got cancer in their brain, often a neurological impairment, but a significant proportion of patients now are being cured of that cancer with often four cycles of induction chemotherapy that we call matrix, which is methotrexate, aracy, confusingly also called cytarabine, thiotipa um, and rituximab. How do you diagnose lymphoma? And also, we see lymphoma as a blood cancer, but it also forms tumours, which is different to our other cancers that we treat. Mm. Would, you bi- would you biopsy and check the bone marrow and what comes first? It's an important thing to think about for our nurses, but also our junior doctors on the wards. How do we diagnose a lymphoma? And uh, the key to diagnosing lymphoma is it's diagnosed by our pathology colleagues on a tissue biopsy. So Often a patient will have had a maybe a, a lump in their neck, a lymph node in their neck, gone through a GP, maybe to a head and neck surgeon or something like that. Unfortunately, sometimes they do something called a fine needle aspirate, which you just get cells out in, in liquid, and that really is insufficient to diagnose lymphoma. You need to get a piece of tissue, so whether that's core biopsy done by our radiologists or an operation to remove a lymph node um, and get that looked at by our pathologists. The pathologists then have the difficult task of subclassifying as we talked about earlier, numerous different types of lymphoma. They have a difficult job sometimes of trying to say which type of lymphoma it is. And we're very lucky here. We work with a brilliant team of pathologists who, who do that. The role of bone marrow biopsy in lymphoma is interesting and important to note. It's not usually a diagnostic test, not usually how we diagnose the disease, but can form an important staging test. So we, we know someone's got lymphoma, they've had a biopsy of their lymph node. We now want to know what stage it is. The bone marrow historically was essential for that because if the bone marrow is involved, automatically makes it stage four disease. Now, increasingly with PET scans, where we can see if the lymphoma is in the bone marrow, we're not doing nearly as many staging bone marrows in lymphoma. And what are the other stages? Could you take us through those? So lymphoma is staged, it's got a funny name, it's called the Ann Arbor staging system. So stage one disease is when you've just got one lymph node involved anywhere in the body. Stage two disease is when you've got two areas of lymph nodes involved, but on the same side of the diaphragm. So you might have, say, lymph nodes enlarged in the neck and the axilla or in the mediastinum and the neck or in the groin and somewhere else in the pelvis. That would be stage two disease. Stage three disease is when we're still talking about disease confined to lymph nodes, but any distribution of lymph nodes. So you might have neck, mediastinum and groin. So both sides of the diaphragm involved. 
Stage 4 disease is when any configuration of lymph nodes, or no lymph nodes even, but evidence of spread beyond the lymph nodes into extranodal tissue. Extranodal tissue could be anything. It could be bone marrow, it could be brain, as in CNS lymphoma, it could be the gut in uh, various lymphomas, liver, really anywhere uh, can be involved. That's the simple classification, stage 1 to 4. There are various little bits that we add on to that. So something that you may hear about is... B symptoms in lymphoma. So for some reason that we don't really know why, some patients with lymphoma have these sort of systemic symptoms. So classically they're described as fever, night sweats and weight loss. And if a patient's got any of those, we say whatever their stage is, stage one to four, B. That's like my And then I wanted to ask the role of steroids in lymphoma. Oh, yeah. So steroids are, most lymphomas are very steroid responsive. That means they usually shrink once we give steroids. This is really useful. So steroids form quite an important part of a lot of the chemotherapy regimens. So CHOP, for example, the P in CHOP is prednisolone, steroid. Often they, they're not really used on their own to treat the lymphoma, but in combination with steroids, very in combination with chemotherapy. The other time we use steroids in lymphoma is, say you've had someone that you're sure has got lymphoma, they've had the biopsy, They've got a huge lymph node mass and it's causing symptoms. It might be causing quite dramatic problems like um, superior vena cava obstruction or obstruction up in the airways. Steroids will often, not always, cause quite a rapid shrinkage of that lymphoma and so can be used in that kind of extreme situation to give us some time until we get the formal diagnosis from the lab and know what we're treating. Important thing though is that we try to avoid the steroids until we know that we've got the biopsy at least in the lab being prepared um, because there's a possibility that you could give steroids, the lymph node shrinks down and it's very hard to ever really get the diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. You re- yeah, so it's always a bit of a balance there. It's like, in my view is typically if we know that there's been a good piece of tissue taken biopsy and we need to use steroids i don't mind not waiting for the results if we need to give steroids the other time steroids can be useful is in the palliative setting so someone who's sadly sort of exhausted all treatment options steroids again can can help control symptoms in that setting so we kind of you, you sort of mentioned that like chop has been going for like 20 years we've got rituximab which has been going for i guess well over 10 years now but what what kind of comes next for advances and improving lymphoma outcomes chop actually has been around for even longer than that um yeah. and then the big addition the biggest change in 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 bnhl was the addition of rituximab to chop massive difference that was about 20 years ago now there haven't been massive advances in frontline therapy, so we're still using RCHOP. It gets changed ever so slightly from time to time, sort of should we give it every two weeks instead of every three weeks? There was a big debate about that. It turns out every three weeks is just fine. So for all the advances in the treatment of blood cancers, we are still stuck with the same first-line therapy. As we've said, it works very successfully in a high proportion of patients, but not everyone. So the advances in, in lymphoma are coming later down the line so at the point of relapse and there are a lot of new treatments that are emerging some are now well established and and used routinely some are still in clinical trials and and uh, going through various stages of clinical trials so in hodgkin lymphoma um, the mainstay of first line treatment is uh, induction treatment with abvd chemotherapy with or without radiotherapy. We sometimes use a more intensive upfront therapy called escalated BCOP, which was devised in Germany and has pros and cons, but again, 
the, the first line therapy is broadly unchanged over many years. In the relapse setting, we've got a, two really important new drugs that we can use at different points in the relapse setting. One is an antibody drug conjugate called brentuximab. Um, we abbreviate that to BV, brentuximab vedotin is its full name. This is an antibody against CD30, which is often expressed on the Hodgkin cells. The reason we call it an antibody drug conjugate is it's really neat. As well as just being an antibody, on the back of that antibody is, if you like, a payload of chemotherapy. So instead of giving chemotherapy in, into a vein and just expecting it to find its way around the body to the dividing cancer cells, this is delivering chemotherapy really only into the cells that express that marker, so express CD30 in this case. And that has the advantage of being sort of a very targeted therapy with fewer side effects and off-target effects. So that is a really effective drug in relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma and some B-cell lymphomas, some non-Hodgkin lymphomas that express CD30. The other key drug that we now have in Hodgkin lymphoma is a class of drugs called PD-1 inhibitors. People might have heard of these as immune checkpoint inhibitors. They're kind of big news in oncology. They've kind of made... Yeah, you've heard of that. Someone just got the Nobel Prize for it. Yes, yeah, yeah. last oh, year. Last that. year well, someone got the Nobel Prize for <laughs> two, two people. Two people got Nobel Prize for these. These are a class of drugs that are making big waves in oncology. So they've been extremely successful in melanoma. In some lung cancers, they're making a big difference in, in a variety of other solid organ malignancies. In the hematological malignancies, the cancer that they're working most effectively in is Hodgkin lymphoma, and it's recently been nice approved in patients who have failed treatment with brentuximab. So these drugs are really neat. One of the reasons, so this is all immunotherapy, which is all the other big bug thing. One of the reasons cancers in general survive and proliferate and grow and thrive is that they are sneaky and they find a way around the body's immune system. So the immune system normally should be fighting inverted commas cancer cells when they develop. So a clever thing that cancers do is they upregulate this protein called PD-1, which kind of fools the immune system to stop seeing them. By blocking that protein called PD-1, it sort of allows the immune system to see, it's re-energized against, against cancer, as it were. It, it's been described as sort of taking the brakes off the immune system. You can predict from that, therefore, that the main side effect of these therapies is an overactive immune system, so various autoimmune complications. So these drugs, PD-1 inhibitors, really effective in relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma. There's quite a few different ones. A lot of pharma companies are making their own. We've got two now recently nice approved in different settings of relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma. And there's a big search in Hodgkin lymphoma, big research emphasis is on looking at where these very effective drugs at brentuximab and the PD-1 inhibitors, can they be brought earlier in therapy to make a difference. One of the things that's exciting about Hodgkin lymphoma is that our treatments have been so successful with more than 90% of patients with early stage disease cured, living long, long lives, that the emphasis on research now is looking on how, how much treatment can we get away with? How can we de-escalate treatment whilst maintaining that long that excellent survival. So those are the, the exciting new treatments in Hodgkin lymphoma. In non-Hodgkin lymphoma, there's also quite a few new drugs. So, so new treatments in, in, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, this has lagged behind a little bit compared to some other hematological cancers. But we have a few new, few new treatments. So in mantle cell lymphoma and CLL and one or two other rarer subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a number of oral treatments have been shown to be really effective in 
there's a drug called ibrutinib, which affects the kind of signaling that keeps B cells alive, which is really effective in CLL and in mantle cell lymphoma. And then a drug that some of you may see up here on the wards is a drug called venetoclax, which again is effective in CLL and in trials in mantle cell lymphoma and in other blood cancers as well which one of the reasons that blood cancer cells sometimes stay alive is that they switch up this program called an anti-apoptotic program, so stops them from dying when they should otherwise die, and then this drug, venetoclax, tries to undo that and allow them to die by apoptosis when they should. So those have kind of niche roles in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, very effective in some subtypes, but not all. Diffuse large B cell lymphoma, I said at the beginning, this is the area, relapsed diffuse large B, where we need to make most advance in, in, in lymphoma. And the things that are emerging it's as one useful. Of the most common, isn't it? So it's the commonest non Hodgkin yeah. lymphoma. Um, and as we said, about a third of patients relapse or refractory. So the treatments that are emerging in, in relapse diffuse large B CAR T cell therapy looks promising. And we've got a number of studies that have been running here for a year or two. Quite a lot of the ward team will be familiar with this now. And very recently, so in December 2018, NHS England have started funding CAR T-cell therapy in relapsed diffuse large B, initially in quite small numbers, but that's probably going to scale up. It's good that they've approved it. It's not a treatment that's going to work for everyone, and it's a treatment that's really in its early stages of development. I'm quite excited because as we sit here today, I've got the first patient receiving a very exciting new drug on the ward here today, which is called a bispecific antibody. These are antibodies, these are drugs that, again, are kind of trying to harness the immune system. Whereas most antibodies target one antigen, so like CD20 for rituximab or CD30 for brentuximab, these target two antigens that should be present on different cells. So in this particular trial that I'm doing, we're trying to link the malignant B cells in a, B, in a relapsed diffuse large B cell lymphoma to the T cells of the immune system to try and get those T cells to come up close to the tumour cells and kill them, which is essentially what you're doing with CAR T cell yes, therapy same. as well. But this is a, a drug in a bottle rather than a cellular therapy that, oh, right, yeah. with all the problems associated with that. It's in its early stages, so it's a phase one trial that I'm running in the, in the clinical research facility where I do some of my phase one work. And um, because it's got some similarities in action to CAR T cell therapy, may have cytokine release, hence why first dose is being given on the wards. So but that won't be a long-term treatment because it's not your own immune system that will continue to produce that forever. Correct. It's a, I suppose it will. But come we don't out. have long-term data on CAR T cell therapies no. and diffuse so large that, B. Yeah. Is, is that the idea of the CAR T? It will continuously forever. Be That's the hope. Basis. That's so the hope. But we don't have long-term data on that in diffuse no. large B. Yeah. Did you create that drug? I did not create that drug. It's been a massive amount of work to get it open. Yeah, we sure, are now sure. open, yeah. so it's quite cool to have What's it called again? Oh, it's got NP39488. It kind of trips off the top. <laughs> you can call it TCB, T-cell T. by specific antibody. Okay. We don't know whether drugs like the ones that we've just been talking about will be as effective as the other new therapies that we've mentioned, CAR T-cell therapy, but... Clearly, if you can have a drug that's produced in a factory and you can take it off the shelf and give it to a patient when they need it, and it's as effective as a cellular therapy, that would be very advantageous. But these are exciting times and we wait to see how these different new therapies play out. I think the most important thing for your war team is thinking that, as you've all said it, and I'm not sure you teach them that, but I think they know, is that 
especially in lymphoma, probably more than leukemia, what they see in the ward is not a reflection of most of our patients. Yeah, because on the ward, the ward perspective on podgetins would be um, you need a transplant to cure. Yeah, you exactly, know, like, exactly. You need an allograft or something. Yeah, and yeah. I think what's difficult about these new and exciting uh, clinical trials and studies, they're in patients that are really, really sick, and we we don't know how well they're going to do, and all they see is, oh, we're giving new treatments to people, and they get really sick, and that's what they see, not the people that are doing really well post that. Thank you.